Any regrets? No. On anything you've done? Do you wish you hadn't done it? Well, I ain't killed nobody. I didn't rob nobody. Yeah. Well, you kind of robbed somebody. I robbed them. They gave it to me. Well, speaking of heart problems, um, I don't have any romantically because I love my wife, and I'm sure that you feel the same <laughs> about your husband. Yes. I did have some heart palpitations, though, watching the results of the North Carolina Democratic Party's chair election, which is the first and probably only time I'm ever going to say that. But our friend, former guest of the show, certified Appalachian unit, even though I think technically she's not from Appalachia, it does not fucking matter. Rural organizer extraordinaire Anderson Clayton ascending to the throne of party chair of the Democratic Party in North Carolina, I believe the youngest in the state's history and the and youngest, the youngest in either party in the whole country. Boom. History made 25 years old. Callie, your home state. I mean, I'm fucking thrilled, man. I I love Anderson. Um, I was immediately texting my friends. Um, I, you know, a, another guest of the show and my favorite politician, Zeb Smathers, I obviously texted him and I was like, love LFG him. Anderson. <laughs> and he uh, he like was he was saying that he had, it was funny that I sent that because he just sent a similar text to her um so we were uh, western north carolina was rallying behind anderson we were all so excited um because she actually gives a shit about western north carolina at appalachian north carolina and for the first time in a generation y'all a generation since heath Schuler was in office we're gonna have a Democratic Party chair who actually cares about Western North Carolina, and that feels amazing. So happy for you all. I, you know what? And there's a lot riding on Anderson's tenure. Like you mentioned before we started recording, you've got a presidential and a gubernatorial coming up. Uh, yeah. Democrats will be defending their hold on the, the governor's office, even though Roy Cooper's gonna be termed out. And, uh, you know, North Carolina is always a swingy state, even though more recently it's like at the presidential level, it's gone to Republicans. It's always a swingy state and it's always an interesting one. Yeah. So there's a lot riding on this and we are really pulling for her. We are hoping that she will do well. We think that she will because she's a badass and yeah. is a, a incredible rural organizer. There's no doubt in my mind that the rural parts of the states will not be ignored and will not be neglected under her leadership. I hope that uh, the party itself and the party apparatus and the leaders throughout the party give her the type of respect and and, and time and resources that she needs to do her job well. Yeah. Because if she's is... able to do that, then, then it's going to be better for the entire state. Yeah, that is such a good point. I... Like I said earlier, when we were just discussing this, I, I think that Anderson is surrounded by a lot of good people who, you know, despite her age or her experience, which I think is fabulous. And like, I love that we have a young person doing this, but I think that she's got the kind of experience and know how and, and, and leadership around her to give her, she's got a great kitchen cabinet is what I'm trying to say. Like she really does. And she's got a lot of people who really care about her success. And I think that that's amazing. Um, I do think that she uh, is facing a lot of 
people who don't believe in her. Um, very clearly, there were there were uh, a lot of folks who did not endorse her, uh, and, and most of them were the party establishment, um, the people who who were. Uh, already in office. So you've got Leroy Cooper, you've got Josh Stein, Sherry Beasley, all, they all endorse the other candidate. And so Anderson not only had this enormous upset, which is incredible, but she's facing down having to stake her own claim on this office and say, I earned this. I belong here. And you guys are now going to have to get behind me and like get on this train or, or get left behind. Fuck yeah. And I really want to see that. I want to see her just seizing that. And it's, I mean, you saw it. Uh, you were mentioning it to me as the meeting was even progressing. She immediately took over the gavel and took over the meeting. And I just, I love that. And I love Anderson and uh, we're going to have her back. Like a uh, fucking G. Like yeah. a fucking G. I love that. Yes. And we will. I, and I'm glad that you brought that up because that's a, an important point is she challenged the establishment and won. Yeah. And when, People, it can happen, folks. Exactly. And when people criticize the Democratic Party, and rightly so, in the vast majority of instances, <laughs> a lot of it boils down to the old guard, the establishment, making the rules and choosing the candidates and choosing the right people. Right. And the way that you change that is getting fresh new blood in there and shaking things up is exactly what what Anderson is trying to do. So we're going to be keeping an eye on our friend Anderson. Again, humongous congratulations to her because... Boy, it, it takes it, it takes a lot to do that. It takes some some cojones, some yeah. balls to do that. And so, congrats to her. She fucking earned it, and we're very proud of her. And we're wishing her luck. So, speaking of rural America, I did. I, I texted you about this. Uh, I, I think it was yesterday. Yes. And I said I have a rant that I, I need to just get out for the mm-hmm. show. And that's why I love having this podcast because I can actually like have somewhat of an outlet to do this selfishly. It is your right. It is your right. Yes. On our run of show, you guys, I literally put Chuck's rant TM. Like Thank trademark. You for that. Yeah, because we needed that. we needed to like put out some time for this. You know, I might even get canceled for some of this. But so I was listening to Bill Maher's weekly show on HBO, and there's a lot of people that are going to roll their eyes at that, and that's fine. I I get annoyed with Bill Maher a lot. I don't agree with him on a lot anymore, but I like sometimes the people that he brings on because they're people I disagree with, and I want to try to understand other perspectives because yeah. that's really important, especially in the work that we do. So um, just to you know lay some foundation there, one of the people on that show was Paul Begala, who is this perpetual CNN talking head. I think he worked for the Clinton White House, maybe. Yeah, I, I did some digging because um, I had only known him as a CNN commentator, too. And when you mentioned this, I was like, I need to figure out who this guy is. So James Carville was like Clinton's chief strategist. And then like the number two guys were Begala and Stephanopoulos. So they were like on equal footing. Yes. And uh, he also, I believe, hosted the show Crossfire yeah. on CNN. Oh, got, my God. With Tucker Carlson back in the early 2000s wow. that got canceled after Jon Stewart just obliterated them in front of their faces. Yeah. I will I will probably put a link to that clip in the show notes because it is worth watching. It's worth watching even 20 years later. 
Absolutely. And I'm not like trying to completely shit on Paul Begala, but I will a little bit here. So he he was talking <laughs> about, they're talking about the horse race 2024 election. And the other panelist was Kristen Soltis Anderson, who I actually really like. I think she's a pretty competent pollster. She's a Republican pollster, but I think that she she's pretty, most of the time, pretty objective in her analysis. Anyway, they were talking about the Republican nomination in 2024 and how, you know, she thinks that Trump might be a little bit more weaker. And I'm not really disputing anything around, like, the actual nomination. My point is that we don't know right. how people, how, how Republican voters are going to feel uh, at the time, like, you know, like a year from now when they're actually voting. And Paul Begala went on this screen about how because he lives in rural America, he understands this issue, mm. which let's just couch this in terms of like this guy is rich and I'm not sure where in rural America he lives somewhere in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, presumably I, close also, to Charlottesville. I but, think it's part time. And I, yeah, I think you're right, because he also has a house in McLean, Virginia, which is one of the most um, yuppie suburbs of D.C. that you can possibly yes. find. It's where and, most of like the CIA people live. It's like yeah, a, my my aunt it's used like a to live there. Security place. Yeah, because she was well, she had a condo there because she used to work for the CIA. So yeah, she, it's yeah. there in Great Falls. That's where everybody from the FBI and CIA live. Yeah, and uh, Glenn Youngkin, the governor, lives in Great Falls because he's rich. Um, <laughs> just throwing that out there. Uh, anyway, Paul Begala, not exactly like cut from the cloth of rural America. He goes on this screen about like, well, I see all these Trump signs and I don't think you should um, downplay this. Trump is definitely going to get the nomination and because I live in rural America, blah, 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 blah. And that Donald Trump will win the Republican nomination. I think he's favored, but I don't think that's a guarantee at this point. I hope you're right, but I think you're wrong. I think th- there's about 35 percent of Republicans who, I mean, they're not just committed. I mean, if we had a fully functional mental health system, they would be, but they love Trump so much. Um, they, I, I spent most of my time, I live in rural America, and um, my county was 71% for Trump, okay? They don't have just bumper stickers. They have flags. Some of them have tattoos. You know, make America G-R-A-T-E, okay, but their heart's in the right place. I don't see, I don't see DeSantis stopping him. Everybody in Washington is about Ron DeSantis. And- what bothers me about this Number one is that these DC pundits, and let's make no mistake, he's a DC pundit. These DC pundits now realize that, um, hey, it's trendy and it's helpful to claim that you're from rural America because it gives you some bona fides when talking about political analysis. So claiming this mantle of rural America while at the same time insulting them in order to have some sort of credibility in this conversation is what pisses me off. And it just makes, makes me so angry because it's like, Sometimes people only care about rural America when it benefits them. Yes. Yes. Okay. I I have I have an add-on to this. I have an Please add-on. Please add the add-on because like that was a bit. That was all my thing. I don't want to spend I, too much time so, on it. So yeah, I, I know you don't want to spend too much time on it, but I do. <laughs> well, that, because you got, let it rip, man. It is. It was. I think the clip is really fucked up. Number one, because they imply that no person without a mental illness could possibly vote for Trump. And the idea that there are still Democrats, well, this is almost eight years after Trump came on the scene, that there are still Democrats and political minds out there who've been thinking about this for eight fucking years, and they still can't wrap their heads around a human being voting for Trump without a, a literal mental illness. That's like 
first of all, very, very offensive to people who have mental illness um, because they said like that they, that they should be committed. Um, and number two, it, it is so degrading to rural America. So there's that piece. And then the, the piece that you mentioned briefly is that they like laugh about how these people who are Trump loyalists, they have Trump tattoos that are spelled make America great, G-R-A-T-E again. Yeah, that, that was the example I was trying to think of. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for reminding me. And so like they they were making fun of very like openly both all of them were laughing about this, making fun of rural people for being stupid. And this is what we talk about constantly. They on this wonder show. why right. they're resented by rural Americans who, by the way, are not a monolith. We are not a monolith. And and it's just it is so it's like they cannot see their own hand in front of their face. It it's it is it's it's ridiculous that the, at the same time that this guy is like I understand rural America because I live there, blah blah blah. I see all of the Trump signs. They have it on their trucks, whatever. He's also making fun of those people. And when you say I live amongst you, but I am better than you, yeah. Like how the how the hell are people supposed to ever come to our side of the aisle when we have people like that who I would call a carpetbagger at this point if you're speaking like that about my people I I just it bothers me so much that that conversation was had in such a giant platform and nobody's talking about it Like yeah my brain wants to explode and I kind of feel like it was not like a huge part of of the discussion, but it just hit me in a very bad way because it's the exact thing that we talk about a lot where it's like they sit there and they talk down to people then wonder why they hate them. Yeah. This is kind of like it, it, it's, you know, the whole talking down to people that you live amongst thing. It reminds me of like a king and vassals, you know, like, yeah. oh, look at these, these peasants in my kingdom, blah, 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 blah. Fuck that guy. Also, you said something about they can't see their hand in front of their face. And my response to that is because their head's up their ass. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know. This I, the the when you sent it to me, I don't usually I don't really like Bill Maher. Um I think he's really super annoying, so I don't listen to his stuff. But when you sent me that, like I definitely appreciate that that needed to be talked about and Democrats have to do better. Liberals have to do better. Leftists have to do better for our country to come out of this fucking hellhole that we have dug for ourselves. Yeah, instead of writing people off as having mental illness if they voted for Trump, maybe try to understand why. Why they got yeah. to that point. Why they made that decision. Novel idea, I know. It's pretty radical, so, you know, ruminate on that. How dare you? So we got a great show. We're talking about moonshine. You, you got a resident expert of moonshining. Dr. Cameron Lippard of the great Appalachian State University to come on and talk about it. We've got, under the radar, we're going to give you some updates on the Norfolk Southern disaster in East Palestine, Ohio. But first, our list. This week, it is about Appalachian outlaws. We're talking about moonshining, a 
illegal activity that's fun to do. And we found some of the best outlaws from Appalachia to talk about. Most of them are moonshiners, but I got to tell you, the, the last one is fucking incredible. I'm so excited to hear. Let's start with number one. This is Maggie Bailey, a bootlegger from Harlan County, Kentucky. Mm, good to good place there. to start with outlaws. Yeah, a lot of outlaws in Harlan, Kentucky. I'm sure we've got some listening to this show right now. And if you are making some moonshine while listening to this, thank you. And please feel free to send some. Uh, we got a P.O. box we're going to have pretty soon. I think you can probably make it happen there. Maggie Bailey started selling moonshine when she was the ripe old age of 17. I love that. Kept selling it into her 90s. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. She was well-liked, well-respected, and she often helped poor Harlan Countyans buying coal to heat their homes in the winter and giving them grocery money so they would not go hungry. She's like an OG mutual aid. She's like EKY mutual aid, but moonshine. Yeah, she's she's Maggie Robin Hood. I, that's beautiful. I love it. She put several children through college, too, which, I mean, look... That's money well spent. Moonshine yeah. money, helping the people. I love it. She even supplied moonshine to the governor at the time. Governor Albert B. Happy Chandler was among the many politicians who paid Miss Bailey a visit while campaigning. During one of his campaigns for governor, he told her, quote, Mag, if you can help me get elected, I'm going to buy you some shoes. Uh, and she said, sure enough, when he got elected, he sent his lieutenant governor there and bought her some shoes. So there That's you go. That's power. That, that is, is power. That's power, and that's delivering on a promise. That's right. Yeah. Honest politician Governor right there. Governor Happy. Governor Happy. Well, he's probably happy because he's drinking so much moonshine. Yeah. Maybe that's how he got his be? name. I, I certainly would be over the fucking moon if I had some. So I love this because so she sold moonshine for the better part of 73 years, and mm. she only served time in prison once despite being arrested over 37 times. 37 times? 37. Um, she was imprisoned at a federal reformatory for women in Alderson, West Virginia, which I believe is where Martha Stewart spent her time. That is correct. There you go. So fame and fortune there. From May 1941 to May 1943 for selling moonshine, the federal indictment said she had 150 half gallons of moonshine on hand at the time she was charged. This woman is a hero. I... I, she's a legend. Absolutely. So when so she was operating in the, in like the forties. So when did she die? Ooh, I don't know. I don't have that readily available. I think it was not that long ago, but it could be wrong. That is amazing that she got arrested thirty seven times and only served only served two years. That's pretty wild. I think two thousand five because NPR did an interview with her attorney. She um, died at a, a age one hundred and one. This woman, the moonshine kept her young. Absolutely. She's a, she's a witch. I love it. That's awesome. I love Maggie Bailey. I do too. She's a little um, Kentuckian. She's great. She's not even the best woman on this list, in my opinion. I love that we have more than one woman on this list of four people. Oh. It's great. But before that, we got number three. This is Junior Johnson, NASCAR moonshiner from Wilkes County, North Carolina. Oh, we know this one. You do? Great. Because I had not, I, I'm not well versed in NASCAR, so I did not know all of this s sordid history until I went into this. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not like a, I'm not a NASCAR fan, but I feel like if you're from North Carolina, you know, Junior Johnson. <laughs> Junior is a NASCAR Hall of Famer whose first talent was moonshining and some even credit him and moonshining with the birth of NASCAR, which I did not know. He had he won 50 NASCAR races. So that's pretty fucking impressive. So, and this is a sidebar because I found this really interesting. Stock car racing had its roots in Appalachia where producing and selling homemade whiskey, a.k.a. moonshine, offered liquid salvation for family farms seeking to escape crippling poverty, especially during the Great Depression, which hit the region particularly hard. Those were hard times back in the hills, and you did things you couldn't get by doing. And now, or, excuse me, those were hard times back in the hills, and you did things you shouldn't just to get by, said NASCAR Hall of Famer Curtis Turner, who began bootlegging at the age of nine. I found that very interesting, and the whole, like, driving really fast racing cars type deal um, was very much, like, part of the origins of NASCAR, I guess. I mean, I'm sure yeah, people yeah. listen to this knew more than I did. Yeah, Wild. absolutely. I, I think that you're, you're spot on there, that NASCAR was, it originated with bootlegging, and it's like, that's kind of, that's the, that's the history and legend, and kind of what makes it still fun is that it's not just race cars, it's got this sordid history, too. I fucking love it, and we'll probably end up doing an episode on it at some point. Yeah, I would love to do that. His father was a lifelong bootlegger who spent nearly 20 of his 63 years in prison. So like Not as good as Maggie Bailey. Life. Nah, he couldn't get out. <laughs> um, and their house was frequently raided by revenue agents. Junior was arrested and spent one year in prison in Ohio in the 50s for having an illegal still, although he was never caught in his many years for actually transporting bootlegged liquor. That's pretty impressive. Never yeah. caught. And fun fact, uh, he was pardoned by President Reagan in 1986 for that conviction. Wow. One of the few good things Reagan ever did. I was just thinking the same thing. Um, <laughs> didn't do many good things. Really fucked things up with AIDS. But, uh, I mean, at yeah. least he pardoned Junior Johnson. So Not, um, not equitable. But <laughs> no, absolutely not equitable whatsoever. Don't misconstrue that, though. Thank you. Good save. Um Famously said that moonshining was part of my growing up, but it was also part of my training in auto racing. Being in that business, you had to have a very fast car. You had to be able to outrun the revenuers or highway patrol officers or sheriffs or whoever tried to pursue you and try to apprehend you. So honestly, if you have a dream of being a NASCAR driver, start making hooch. Yeah. I. Why aren't there more modern movies about moonshining? Like Great This seems question. like such a fun idea for like a fast and furious type movie but set as moonshining like how incredible would that be if you have well yeah you could have vin diesel you could have the rock you could i mean or you could just have like i don't i would love to see timothy chalamet do some bootlegging <laughs> oh God. yeah um we'll see uh uh Harry Styles and they're driving the General Lee. You know. I will literally do I will watch anything that Harry Styles is in. Anything. All right. So this one is my contribution to this list. Number two. 
is Popcorn Sutton. He was a Ooh. moonshiner from Western North Carolina. Um, and he was alive from 1946 to 2009. So he was around for a while. Um, you have probably seen his likeness. He is kind of everywhere. I feel like he is a, a, a legend in Appalachia. So he was a, a moonshiner and a bootlegger, um, born in Maggie Valley, North Carolina, which is in Haywood County. Um, and he grew up there, he lived there, and he died in the rural areas around Maggie Valley and nearby in Cock County, Tennessee, because Haywood County is right on, on the border of Tennessee. So he had a long career making moonshine and bootlegging, um, and he considered it a legitimate part of his heritage. He was Scots-Irish and Hell descended yeah. from a long line of moonshiners. Yes. Uh, in the 60s and 70s, uh, he was given the name, nickname Popcorn. This one is a new thing. I actually didn't know this until I did this research. Um, he was given the nickname Popcorn after he had a frustrated attack on a bar's faulty popcorn machine with a pool cue. That's just... Wow. That is the most country ass thing I have ever heard in my life. I want my damn popcorn. I love it. Um, I hope that they fucking gave it to him. I I just that's the most beautiful way to get a nickname. I love it. So it's such an innocent of, sounding nickname too for such I, I a know. violent act, right? So he kind of was not like famous until his 60s. Uh, he'd been in trouble several times, but had avoided prison sentences. He was convicted in 74 of selling untaxed liquor and in 81 and 85 on charges of possessing controlled substances and assault with a deadly weapon. Wonder if that was a pool cue, um, but received <laughs> only probation sentences until the 85 arrest. Um, and he served some time in Asheville. Um, so he had a roadside store. This is legitimate. He had a roadside moonshine. So he like did not give a fuck <laughs> about the police. Um, but in 98, it was searched by state agents who seized a moonshine still and 60 gallons of moonshine and he was placed on probation. Um, so this is where it gets really juicy. In March, 2008, Sutton told an undercover federal officer that he had 500 gallons of moonshine in Tennessee and another 400 gallons in Maggie Valley that he was ready to sell. This led to a raid of his property by the ATF, led by uh, Jim Cavanaugh, who you may remember from Waco. Oh, <laughs> Literally Jesus. the same guy, the same guy from the Waco siege. Those are not, for those of you not familiar with Waco, Google it. That's not a good credential. No, it's real bad. Government um, really fucked that one up. Yeah, so in 2009, Popcorn, who had used a public defender as his attorney in the case, pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 18 months in federal prison. Um, but this man was not going to prison. Let Fuck me tell no. you. So... It's kind of sad, uh, and his legacy is really mixed, but he died by suicide, carbon monoxide poisoning mm. on March 16, 2009, because he did not want to go to prison. Um, his wife, Pam, who he married about two years before his death, returned home from running errands and discovered her husband in his green Ford Fairmont, which was still running um, at the rear of their property in Parrotsville, Tennessee. She said he called it his three-jar car because he gave three jugs of liquor for for it which is amazing good for um, his, him 
his daughter said that he, uh, he had told her in advance that he would die by suicide rather than going to jail, adding that he had, quote, the strength to die the way he lived according to his own wishes and no one else's. So he's got a he's got a checkered uh, memory. But this man was an outlaw if there ever was one. I love this guy. So sad to hear about um, the suicide. Don't blame him for not wanting to go to prison, but um, not the way to do it. But uh, what a legend. I mean, first of all, popcorn doesn't do it justice for clocking somebody with a pull cue. Right. Uh, Really has cemented his reputation as a moonshiner extraordinaire. And honestly, if if Western North Carolina hasn't erected a statue in this man's honor, then I don't, what are they doing with their time? Right. Yeah. No, I, I mean, this is the the best example of like, we need a movie about this. We yeah. need a movie about this man's life. Like this would be, this is premium television. If they're making a movie about cocaine bear, right. Then they can make a movie about popcorn Sutton. That's all I'm saying. I agree with you, and actually, that's a great transition to our number one on this list because this Let's person, go. I believe, had a movie made about them. Ooh. I think. All right, let's dive in. Callie, this person who is still alive, I think. I think there are like 92. Oh. I want them to be my grandma. Wow, okay. I, I don't think that I've... I don't deserve this person as my grandma, but I want them to be. <laughs> Doris Payne, the ice queen is what they call her because she is a Ooh. accomplished jewel thief from Slab Fork, West Virginia. Hot damn, we have a jewel thief? We do. Now, she currently lives in Atlanta, I believe, but she is from Slab Fork. Doris is a convicted jewel thief whose crimes spanned six decades and notably stole a 10-carat diamond ring worth $500,000 from Monte Carlo in the 1970s. And I'll get into that here She in a pulled a casino royale? She, this motherfucker did it by herself. She was Ocean's one. She did not need the rest of the oceans. No. She needed one OG. Honest to God, like this person, I have no problem with this at all. I just want to be clear. <laughs> like whoever had this diamond probably was rich to begin with. First of all, she has had more than 20 arrests in countries around the world, including Greece, France, England, Switzerland, probably one oh of the Oh my mo- God, you have, to be, you have to be doing something bad for the Swiss to, right. to arrest you. For, I mean, being West Virginian is illegal in certain parts of Switzerland, I've heard. You know, <laughs> I've heard. I've heard that to be true. She has had, she's used 22 aliases at least and probably has gotten away with more than she's been caught with. Her first heist occurred in Appalachia. She boarded a bus to Pittsburgh, stole a diamond, fenced it, which means sold it illegally, and gave the money to her mother to get out of town and away from her father because I think it was a troubled marriage. I think the there's some domestic violence there. So yeah. so there's some like good things that came from that. I would say, hell yeah, steal that diamond, sell it, give it the money to your mom. Fuck yeah. Yeah. 
good uh, cause. It's a good cause. Absolutely. Okay, so in Monte Carlo, fancy, fancy people live there, I think. Yeah. Is, that's the important takeaway. Um, so in a fancy person place known as Monte Carlo also was <laughs> the name of the Chevrolet model car that Dale Earnhardt, rest in peace, drove. Um, she stole a massive diamond and it was too big. This piece was way too significant, too hot of an item. And when she arrived at the airport, like this is a $500,000 10 carat diamond. When she arrived at the airport, police were there waiting for her. This is where it gets fucking nuts. While in custody, apparently this, this was mounted on a ring. While in custody, she managed to pry the stone, the diamond from its setting through the ring, out her window, into the Mediterranean, and sewed the diamond into her girdle. What? Eventually, she escaped the clutches of law enforcement, fled to New York, and sold it for $148,000. Oh, my God. Un-fucking-believable. That's... That is... Just brilliant. Yeah. I mean, who else has a better story than that? And first of all, like, I don't know who she stole this diamond from, but I'm willing to bet that they could probably afford to lose it. Yeah. So good on her. I mean, seriously. This is wild. She was also a master, like, like liar i don't know how else to say it she was arrested in 2017 for stealing from a walmart a little bit less prestigious than monte carlo yeah yeah this see how the mighty have fallen yeah and when asked about it from a reporter she said walmart no i've never been to a walmart and i've never stolen jewelry oh my god and then my favorite part of the interview was the reporter asked her do you have any regrets and Doris said, well, I didn't kill nobody or rob nobody. And then the reporter was like, well, you did kind of rob people. And Doris said, I didn't rob them. They gave it to me. Beautiful. <laughs> I love Fuck Doris. Yeah. That she, the fact that Monte Carlo and Walmart are on this list. She is an equal opportunity thief. Fuck yeah. Which and- is absolutely hysterical. Hysterical. Like, and she's not she's not robbing from like some poor folks. It, you no. know, there nobody's this is Walmart, a corporation that can handle some theft, and this is Absolutely. like somebody who lives in Monte Carlo, which could it this is this is just brilliant. I love her. I honest to God love her. I want her to be my grandma. I just want to hang out with her. She still is alive. She's 92 years old. Um and uh, maybe, maybe she would do a, an interview with us. Yes. All right. Well, let's move on to announcements. So we've got um, our Patreon, patreon.com slash You can go there. You can subscribe for as little as a dollar a month. And what do you get? You get weekly exclusives. You get access to live events. Um, we use our Patreon money to invest back into the show. So our website 
our uh, editing software, all of uh, all of our graphics. We pay for premium memberships to graphic design so that we can bring you really amazing infographics. These are things that are not free. And so we are also, we're incorporating into an LLC. We are making sure that legally we are an entity. These things all cost money. And so when you invest in our show, you're not only investing in quality journalism coming out of Appalachia, and us, you're investing in the future of that and what we can pass on. Um, this is an archive of amazing information that is going to last forever. Um, and so we're really excited that you can be part of that with us as a Patreon member. One of the best benefits, though, that you get from being a Patreon member, which you can join for as little as a dollar a month, is you get a custom limerick written by one of the co-hosts of this show, the only one that does write limericks, Callie Pruitt. <laughs> you wrote one for our newest Patreon member, Jim. I sure did. Care to read it? I am ready. So everybody, raise it up for Jim. There's never been anyone like him. Environmentalist extraordinaire, loving the earth with care. For him, we'd go out on a limb. Hell yeah. Welcome, Jim. Thank you so much for joining. And if you want a custom limerick or anything else that we just mentioned, join patreon.com slash and we'd love to have you. Let's get into it. So our interview, we're talking about moonshine. And before the interview, though, I wanted to ask you because I have a story to share for this. And I probably have shared it on this show at some point before, but I wanted to talk about moonshine with you real quick. Do you have any experience with actual moonshine? Yes. Lay it on me. I've, <laughs> I've been waiting. I was hoping. I was hoping you'd say yes. I was yes. worried. I was like, God. I, I know she was kind of straight edge. I was very straight edge, but like we both have experiences. Yes, I love it. Yes. Let's do it. So, um, yeah, I did not drink until it was legal. I was super boring. Um, but once I did, uh, you know, my dad knows a guy who knows a guy, and I love. Of course he does. We love Mark Pruitt. We love Mark Pruitt. Um. So yeah, we, I, I have specifically asked for moonshine on multiple occasions for different parties or, um, different get togethers and, um, well, uh, I have time out, time out. out. First of all, if you're, you're playing, playing a party, party like, like now, now I, I want, want to go, go. I've always wanted to go, of course, but, but if, if you're, you're like, like bringing the legit, legit moonshine, moonshine yeah. you must've had like people busting down the door getting to your parties. The parties were really fun. Um, and I, I will definitely be hosting more of them, but, um, yeah, we have moonshine at my parties. Um, and we all drink from the same jar before COVID. So, but that's not going to happen anymore, but we'd pass around the jar. Um, cause that's just how you did it. You know, um, I love the taste of moonshine. I, I think that if you get it made really well, it can be really smooth and really great. Um, and so, so yeah, I've done that. And then I also have experience with moonshine cherries, um, which you, it's like used more as like medicinal purposes. So if you have like a sore throat or something like that, pop in a moonshine cherry and um, you're, you're good to go. So I, I love moonshine. I love the culture of moonshine. If you want to party with me, bring moonshine. Um <laughs> After after the baby's born, we will definitely be throwing a rager with some moonshine. I I also introduced it to Danny. Danny had never had moonshine um, until we were together because they don't really do that in the DC area. Yeah, the, the Rockville, Rockville, they don't know they what don't the know fuck's what the up with moonshine, moonshine there. Yeah, no. 
What about you? What's your moonshine experience? Uh, so I've got two really quick stories. The first, uh, so I never tried this moonshine. I have tried moonshine. I've never tried in this example, but I just thought it was funny, um, like kind of how broadly moonshine as a tradition is shared. When So I went to Kenya when I was 20 years old. It was in 2010 uh, for... To to help with um the Episcopal Church there, we were we were helping install computer labs, that kind of thing. The the guy who used to be the priest at my church started a nonprofit there to help kind of bring uh, technological advances to different rural regions of Kenya, yada yada yada. Anyway, we stayed at the mission house, which was owned by the diocese there, like the um the Anglican Church of Kenya, um for that region, and our neighbor like made moonshine like i'm pretty sure out in the open i know that there was a still and i thought that was cool because that is cool i mean it was rural kenya it was on the border of kenya and uganda and they're fucking around with moonshine there unfortunately i never got to have any i did drink plenty of tusker beer which is fucking awesome but uh, and you can get it at jungle gyms in cincinnati ohio but what I will say is my my favorite moonshine story, this is the, the legit story, is that I was at church camp in, um, I'm going to say, an undisclosed part of the Eastern Panhandle because I don't want to potentially get this person in trouble. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I've already said it many times on this show before, but I'm just going to say an undisclosed part of uh, a certain county in the Eastern Panhandle. I was a counselor at that church camp for several years, for four years. I was also a camper for 10, so I spent a total of 14 summers there. Um, And it was an Episcopal church camp. It was way more laid back. It wasn't like the kids on fire, Jesus camp type shit. And so the, um, the last, I think, day before we were set to go back after the summer had ended, so all the campers were gone. It was just counselors there and staff, so we're having a good time. Drinks were flowing, uh, I was not having a good time because at the time, my then girlfriend of about a year and a half had broken up with me over the phone. So I was uh, feeling kind of shine. I was yeah right. I was big sad. I was I was in need of some shine. And the person who was the executive director of the camp at the time was also a deputy sheriff for that county. Okay. And they had just so happened to have a bottle of moonshine. It was, and this is how you know it's legit. It was in an Aquafina bottle, a used Aquafina bottle that had a red ribbon tied around the stem. And she oh looked at me and she's God. like, I got this earlier today. You could use some of it. And by got it, I'm pretty sure she meant like confiscated it from someone that she arrested. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. That's just what I'm assuming since she's a deputy sheriff. And I was like, what is this? She's like, just drink it. I open it up and it's like the fumes hit you. Like this was clear ass grain alcohol. Yeah. I drank like maybe a shot of it and it burned so hard, but it felt so good. Good. Yeah, it feels good. It could rip the like the varnish off of a table. It could burn a hole in a cabinet probably, but by God, it was delicious. And I yeah. was very drunk that night. Yeah, that's oh man! I want some moonshine. I know, right? I want some legit moonshine, not some of that Being pregnant bullshit. Sucks. Yeah, what the fuck, babies? Why do you have to get fetal alcohol syndrome? Some bullshit. Makes me sound so bad. 
No, it makes you sound human. Yeah. It makes you sound human. You can be pissed off at that. Honestly, when this child grows up, when they achieve legal drinking age and probably even before, they're going to be able to empathize with that or, or sympathize, whatever the word is for it. Because they're going to be yeah. like, yeah, no, that would suck to not drink for nine months. Well, it's really funny, too, because like I, I source my moonshine from my dad. I imagine that this baby's going to source their moonshine through me. Well, so. they should. Yeah. You should always have you should always have a very reliable source. Dr. Cameron Lippard, this is your professor, right? Like you yes. you had them several times. Why don't you do I the did. introduction? So I this is I was so excited to bring Dr. Lippard on. Um as y'all know, I went to Appalachian State University um and I majored in sociology and at the time Dr. Lippard was not the chair of the department but he was one of the that kind of chief people who taught there. Um, so he now is the chair of the sociology department at App State. Um, he taught a bunch of classes on race and racism, immigration and war and inequalities. And he also taught the boring stuff like research methods. Um, he has done so much amazing research. He's written eight books. Um, he takes people on a yearly trip to Northern Ireland to see about the troubles. Like this man is into everything. And one of those things is moonshine. Um, so he also serves as the senior editor of the North Carolina Sociological Association's online research journal. Um, and he's the co-editor of the international research journal, Sociological Inquiry. He's the vice president for the Southern Sociological Society and vice president of membership for the Association of Humanist Sociology. So this man is legit. Um, and he was one of my absolute favorite professors. I took his classes again and again. I think I had him more than any other professor. Um, and I can guarantee you Cameron Lippert is not the professor from App State who told me to lose my accent. Um, so <laughs> yeah, fuck that professor. I don't know who they are, but fuck them. Yeah, no, this was uh, Dr. Lippert is rad as hell. I love that. Well, I'm very I, I love this conversation. I'm sure we're going to have them back on at a later time to talk about different things, but this is a great conversation. Y'all are going to learn a lot. I mm. learned a ton because I truthfully didn't know that much about moonshine, to be honest. I've done some distillery tours, but those don't really tell you a whole lot, but on the surface level. So we had an expert, brought him on, very excited. And uh, why don't we just get right into it? All right, well, we can just dive in. Okay. Um, welcome to our interview with Dr. Cameron Lippard. Um, I have to say I'm quite excited about this one because I went to Appalachian State. As you all know, I'm a very proud alumnus of Appalachian State, and I uh, majored in sociology while I was there. Just so happens that Dr. Lippard is the chair of the sociology department and taught me I think probably more classes than anybody else when, while I was at App State. Um, and so I'm just thrilled to have him on the show um, for one of his many areas of expertise. So welcome to the show, Dr. Lippard. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's really great. And it's good to see you or hear you again, if we want to put it in the podcast world. And uh, yeah, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to answer any of your questions you have. 
Awesome. Well, I would first like to give our listeners kind of a feel for who you are and your expertise. Um, Can you give us a little bit of background on your Appalachian heritage? Because it is unique and a little bit about your academic work as well. Sure, sure. So I was uh, raised in Western North Carolina and around Boone, North Carolina uh, from the age of six uh, until I grew up and went to Appalachian State. So I am also an alum of Appalachian State University back in the 90s before cell phones and real internet. Um, So here I am again uh, back at App State. I returned here in 2007 um, as a sociology professor And, you know, I think my background speaks to a lot of uh, first generation college students who go to college not knowing what they're getting into um, and learning about, you know, the world around us that may have been closed to us in kind of a rural setting. So, you know, college really opened my mind um, and an opportunity to do a lot of different things. So I always, you know, if, if there's people out there listening right now, they're thinking about going to college and live in a rural area, do it do it because it's going to open up so many opportunities for you. Um, so that that's kind of my you know background. I grew up with, you know, working class families um, that are were, you know, really just subsistence farmers, did odd jobs. Um, even my grandparents, some of them didn't even graduate from high school. Um, they were part of that generation that went off to war during World War II and just, in, you know, were farmers to start with and came back to, you know, a life and family. Um, on the farm. Um, so I have all that background too. So I know about planting crops and all that stuff that I don't get to use a lot as a professor, um, but I definitely would have to pick it up if there was an apocalypse, which there's plenty of shows that tell me it's going to be bad. So <laughs> so I think that's important that, you know, I, had, I know how to skid a deer and plant some watermelons. So that's, that's one of those things. Um, but also just as a, as a scholar and as a college, uh, you know, as someone who studies sociology, find it fascinating uh, being from the American South, being from a rural area and going back and learning things again. Think you know everything when you leave home, but when you come back home, you realize that, wow, you didn't know anything and you really need to investigate it some more. So I've gotten involved in looking at several things that go on in Southern Appalachia, uh, particularly looking at you know, even like new populations coming to this area, like Latino immigrants uh, who have moved into these areas and try to become, you know, part of the the culture and part of the fabric of Appalachia, which has been kind of in the making for the last 30 years or so. I've also studied just kind of the culture of Appalachia, um, looking at things like moonshine, um, even the idea of craft beer. Um, now I'm working on uh, a book right now that looks at my research about the Confederate flag and its presence in the South uh, up to the current moment um, that we're dealing with. So I've always been interested in going back and studying in my own home place um, and understanding the people I grew up with. And not in a kind of, you know, and a lot of people worry about being negative nowadays. And, and really what I'm doing is trying to expose what we're going through, right? Things that we've always had to deal with, poverty, um, Um, issues of racism, classism, gender issues, even issues of just being invaded. You know, that question of invasion of rural spaces, uh, whether we're looking at colonial times or whether we're talking about right now where many mountain towns in Appalachia are just tourist destinations um, and live on that tourist dollar. So 
I can be critical, I can be cynical, and I can also be, you know, exploratory and whimsical about, ooh, those are good word choices, um, about studying Appalachia uh, and understanding what, what we are today. Awesome. Um, I thought such a great one down. Um, and I want to have you on for so many of those issues. But yeah. <laughs> we're here today to talk about moonshine. Um, this is a, something that we've gotten a lot of requests to talk about. Sure. Um, and so we're really excited to have an expert on on to talk yeah. about it. So let's start like really, really simple. Sure. Um, we've all seen kind of like the newly advertised moonshines that are on store shelves now. But I have a, a little feeling that that's just marketing. So what is moonshine in the traditional sense? Yeah, I mean, the real simple definition of moonshine is illegal liquor. <laughs> that's liquor made at home, right? Because we know that based on the federal government here in the United States, you are not still by law allowed to create and sell or distribute your own liquor or spirits. Um, so when we say moonshine, we're talking about illicit alcohol right made at home that is of a certain proof that's got to be over probably 10 to 15 percent proof because we're allowed to make beer but we're not allowed to um as as citizens we're not allowed to brew and distill our own liquor right and even though we have tv shows that seem to show that it's happening everywhere it's still a federal crime right can lead to felony arrest and jail time and even lots of fines so when we say moonshine, even in, in research world of studying Southern Appalachia or Appalachia in general, we're talking about illicit liquor production. Um, but of course, what you're seeing on the on the on the shelves at the local liquor store or on, on TV are all now commercialized liquor production, right? That carry the moniker of being a traditional product that is moonshine, right? So we can get into the weeds of that, sure, certainly about the authenticity of that, right? I've always found that super interesting because I think moonshine is often couched in terms of a certain specific type of liquor, mm -hmm. but really like what you're saying, and I think I, I learned this when I was at a distillery once that it really, it pertains to the legality of it. Like it right. doesn't necessarily have to be like a corn or rye or, or grain type alcohol it just has to be above a certain proof and illegal illegally made i love that um i'm curious because this is always it's always comes up in the conversation of appalachia but what what's like broadly speaking the history of moonshining in appalachia i feel like it's often couched in terms of a tradition for the region but not much is really at least for me not much i i don't know much about it to be honest i just i know about like sort of the stereotypes about it i know that it's often associated with um with country folk but aside from that what is sort of the broad history of appalachian moonshining yeah i i rely on my historian colleagues to kind of give us that background and you know i think about bruce stewart's work he's a historian here at appalachian state and he points out that moonshining or creating liquor in the household, let's start with that kind of connotation because it wasn't illegal when it first started, um, was really in the 1700s with uh, immigrant settlers coming into Appalachia, um, Scotch-Irish, right, Germans, um, English, French, folks moving into territories, right, in the 1700s, which were mostly occupied by Native Americans. Um, and trying to find a way to still produce the alcohol that they were accustomed to back home, meaning 
in Europe, right? Um, and trying to find a way also to try to make money off of that. Um, so if you think about it, like moonshining came out of first a necessity, right? A necessity to find a product that they could produce and sell and market. Um, if you think about the kind of abilities to travel with bales and bales and storages of storages of corn or something to that effect, some kind of grain, well, things don't last as long as we'd like to think. We don't have refrigeration. We don't have a good storage method, maybe barrels or such. So taking 10 acres of corn and taking it down to, let's say, if you were going from the high country in Western North Carolina to Asheville, which had a, a market, right, to sell those things. Well, how do you transport that? How much is it going to cost? What kinds of kinds of abilities do you have as a new settling, particularly poor, uh, uh, you know, European immigrant to bring that corn to market? What's difficult, right? That's going to cost, you know, horses, wagons, time, effort. And there's a good chance that that crop won't make it because it'll spoil um, before it gets to market. So we see this tradition kind of build out as a, a tradition of taking corn that you've raised in the mountains or raised or grains of some sort and distilling that to make it potable. I mean, portable, not potable, portable, <laughs> not potable, uh, portable uh, for sale. Right. And if you think about it, I can move 10 gallons of whiskey a lot easier than I can um, 10 bushels of corn. Um, and, you know, it's all about trying to find a way to go to market with, to make some capital, right, that I can spend on. Because what we know is that folks living in Appalachia still were dependent on income, even though they tried to raise crops and, and various things, because there just wasn't enough of my end available that was serviceable and able to raise uh, agricultural products on, even cows and things like that take up space, right? And you can't put everything on the side of a mountain. So this was a way to make money, right? Um, and it really didn't become a problem, meaning become moonshine, actually until the American Civil War. So up until that point, we could also probably point out the Whiskey Rebellion, you know, back in the day. But up to this point, it was kind of a free-for-all, free-market um, industry, if you will. In fact, many have claimed, historians have claimed, that the first industry in Appalachia was liquor distribution liquor manufacturing right um that brought that to the forefront for appalachia to make some money to be able to compete to purchase things they even pay taxes on their land you can sell 10 gallons of whiskey or, or moonshine and be able to pay your property taxes um which at that time up until the, the american civil war there was really no clear taxes or federal regulation of that production so how did how did the Civil War change all of that? Uh, wars make us have to <laughs> raise money, right? So think about it this way, right? Uh, when when any country goes into war, they're usually in debt, right? Um, so the great wisdom of our Congress at that time was to create a, a, a whiskey tax or a liquor tax in 1862 um, to raise funds for the war effort. Right. Um, and that's one way to kind of look at this. So really things don't become illicit or illegal until the federal government says, well, we'd like to make a little bit of money off of your sales. Right. Which really sent a lot of people into underground um, liquor making. Right. Moonshining, as we know it today, to avoid to evade. Right. Uh, the tax. Right. And this goes like this goes to even like comparing to things like 
you know, trying to crack down on the mafia in the, you know, the 1930s and 40s. We were going to send in an IRS agent, right? Um, someone who deals with internal revenue service to collect those taxes or to shut down operations that are paying those taxes, right? Um, but, you know, this, the good news is for many people in Appalachia, they didn't have the, the the person power or the ability to come up the mountain and find these folks until later and, you know, after the Civil War and into the, the 1900s. Um, so people were able to evade that quite a bit, and it still became very prosperous to at least sell, just to create and sell liquor locally um, for folks. Because we also have to point out that People used to drink a lot <laughs> and drink a lot more than we do today um, because of the temperance and prohibition movements that we went through in our country. But before then, families would drink gallons of liquor within a month um, as a digestive, as a treatment for sickness, um, and also just as uh, it's my right um, to have and. You can see some of this start to play out here in the in the modern era of like, well, it's my, you know, it's my right to do these kinds of things. Um, and at that point, it was. There was no restriction on production of liquor in the household. That's so interesting. So so then we move into the 1900s. Right. And obviously, that's kind of where so many of like the legendary players come in. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk about some of the, the major moonshining players um, in the last, I don't know, a hundred years or so, or if there's any that really stand out as these kind of characters that we have come to know. Yeah. I, I mean, you can look at labels on bottles now um, to see the characters, right? And remember these are caricatures Right. These are myths built into legends. Right. Um, so we you can throw out names like Jack Daniels. Right. Jack Daniels wasn't necessarily a bootlegger or a moonshiner, but he didn't start with a legal operation. Right. And and used a lot of talents of various people, such as his um, African-American counterpart, uh, uh, Uncle Nearest. Right. Uh who helped him produce these things right really under the under under the radar of government influence um you can think of people like reverend call uh, of the call family which now has a legitimate distillery in wilkesboro north carolina but reverend call was known to work with uh um jack daniels um to build his formula and then because he was a preacher, which is interesting, there's a lot of connection between Protestant preachers and the Baptist preachers and making liquor, is that his congregation told him he had to quit making liquor. <laughs> and so he said, okay, but I'll just move. So he moved to North Carolina, uh, started another church, and started producing liquor again. Um, but his family has continued that tradition as illicit moonshiners up till being legitimate here in the early you know, 2000s. Um, with that. So, I mean, you could go on, there's, there's all kinds of people, famous people within that era and into um, even the modern era. Um, if you want to say the 1900s, we think about Popcorn Sutton and we think about those kinds of folks that are getting played up on the History Channel. Um, we think about those kinds of folks, but a lot of those folks are famous because why? They got caught, right? They're not there. And there's plenty of other moonshiners that have never been caught and are just as famous locally 
um, as as those counterparts that we see on TV or hear about. Um, in fact, you could look to Dr. Stewart's work. Um, he has some several books about Moonshine Kings um, and Kingpins, if you will, because it was run as if a, you know, as if it was a mafia, you know, cartel kind of situation. Um, most people know moonshining really in its history based on where it happens. Um, a lot of people claim to be the moonshine capital of the world. Um, so places like Franklin County, Virginia, um, where I think that movie, oh man, what was that movie with the guy who played Bane in Batman? Um, there's a movie. I can't think of it right now. Um, but some of your listeners might remember this movie. It's called, oh, it's Lawless, um, where there's this kind of, anachronistic uh, kind of play of what happened in Franklin County and moonshining there. Wilkes County or Wilkesboro, North Carolina is also known as the moonshine capital of the world, also known AKA as the kind of the birthplace of NASCAR um, and that kind of thing. So you'll hear, hear people like Junior Johnson, who was one of the first NASC official NASCAR racers, right? And team owners, uh, used to be a, a bootlegger running moonshine through the hills of, uh, you know, North Carolina um, to evade uh, capture. And a lot of that discussion, you know, floats around the kind of connection between fast cars and NASCAR, building stock cars into faster cars to beat the revenueer and being a moonshine king, right? Um, so there are a lot of names we could drop, but the real thing is that the names don't necessarily matter as much as the culture matters um, in the sense of how people call them become moonshiners. It's usually familial, right? It's passed from father to son or, or even father to daughter. Um, and even when you look at mm, modern distilleries, right? It's not like craft beer where everybody's like, I want to make a craft beer. It often has been familial um, and it's ties to creating a brand, right? It comes from a tradition um, which is a little different than what we see with craft beer, right? Or some of the other kind of craft uh, industries that are, are popping up in the 21st century. Yeah, that that makes me think of, um, I always tie this, everything back to bluegrass, but it makes me yeah. think of the song Dooley, where he his daughters are helping him bottle the moonshine and mm -hmm. um, that, that, that family tradition. Um, I do want to talk about revenueurs, though. I think okay. that that's a really interesting, a really interesting piece of this. Um, so were revenueurs members of the community or were they sent in from afar you know i'm i'm interested in kind of knowing the the what about more about them and if they were kind of like if they were outcasts in their own communities for doing this kind of work yeah i, I mean they were local and they were meaning you know when we say local at least they had a last name that matched a lot of people around them in their community. So these were people who were probably law enforcement agents in some way or another, and then became, you know, uh, revenue agents for either the state that they lived in where it was illegal um, to produce uh, uh, moonshine or alcohol, as well as being federal agents. So there's different roles that everybody said there could be a state agency or there could be a local, like the sheriff's department could make an, you know, a task force to deal with moonshining. Um, and, re and remember that, like, when we talk about the, you know, the kind of 
regulation of creating illicit liquor. It wasn't just about taxes, too. Um, there was clear ev evidence to the local communities that it led to other criminal activity, right? Um, it also led to things like domestic violence in the household. Uh, you know, the prohibition movement was not just about getting people to stop drinking. It was also about women going out and voting and hoping that stopping men drinking so much would reduce the amount of intimate partner violence that was going on in the household, right? So there's different things. And then there's just, uh, you know, religious beliefs, right? Um, so tap that into it. So these folks that are revenuers um, or participating in that role thought that they were doing the community a, a service, right? So I want to put that in framework, right? And it's not like the moonshiners are like, well, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want to, you know, support, you know, these kinds of things. Like people should be temperate when they drink and they shouldn't, you know, beat on their families uh, when they drink. They agreed with those things too. But the rub was between following the law and keeping your family alive with funds coming into your house, right? Because we have to remember that Appalachia has always had a problem economically and having sustainable, and we use these words now, sustainable and living wage occupations, right? <laughs> they meant, can I put food on the on the table for my family, right? So they worked in concert with one another based on kind of the morality of communities and the aspects, but they both had a job to do, right? So when I think about revenuers in that role, they had a job to enforce a law and laws that kept down possibilities of harm to other folks, right? Um, and we we don't talk, we talk a lot about, you know, moonshine being run through radiators and everybody getting poisoned and those kinds of things. That was pretty rare, but it was a scare tactic, right? And it did happen, right? People would, you know, die from alcohol poisoning, um, die from too much lead in the, 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 the mixture or whatever. But those were slim, isolated things versus what became the public notion of it's bad for you, right? It's going to kill you. Um, so those kind of campaigns kind of went hand in hand. Um, so when revenuers were talking to moonshiners, yeah, they knew them, right? They went to church with them. They might have, uh, you know, sat down at the lunch counter with them um, to have lunch. But that next day, they're like, well, you know, hey, watch what you're doing tonight. I'm going to be out, right? Or, um, yeah, I'm purposely looking for your still site. So I can shut it down. I know you're selling 2,200 gallons of, and that's huge, by the way, that's just huge, 2,200 gallons of moonshine in a month. You know, it, so there's this kind of rub, right? It's not that they, <laughs> it, it's not that they were, saw each other as bad people, but they were in competition and they had very different goals, right? But they knew, everybody understood it's kind of illegal to do this. But how am I going to put food on my table? Revenuers, same way. I know this is illegal. I'm going to have to stop you. But you've got to go back and feed your family um, or, you know, take care of your family. I don't want to put you in prison. So we kind of, you know, we kind of, I uh, don't have a better word right now, trump up, you know, this relationship to be an adversarial relationship. And that's because of movies, right? Like Thunder Road, um, which was a popular movie that made Moonshine look, you know, this like battle between you know, law enforcement and the free thinking, you know, this is my right kind of uh, member. Um, but that's kind of, you know, myth and legend instead of just the reality of these people did live side by side. They had to deal with each other.
And just like all illicit behavior, if laws change, so did their roles change, right? So that's important. That's super interesting. And I, you know, you bring up a, a lot about um, the portrayal. And, and I'm kind of wondering where we stand today with moonshining. It seems like some uh, sort of an antiquated practice at times, but you also see this resurgence in popular media with quote unquote reality TV shows about moonshining and you see the popularity of just like the marketed products of moonshining. So where do we sit today with the actual practice? So I would say first that the practice went again, it's underground, right? So there are several individuals out there illicitly making liquor, right? Um, As a hobby even, right? Like, cause now you can purchase these items to produce uh, liquor at home through Amazon. You get amazon.com the heck out of uh, moonshining equipment right now, right? It's kind of like, you know, I'm going to compare it to the marijuana and cannabis industry. You can buy all the implements and accoutrement to go along with marijuana growth and use without illegal, uh, without being dealt with the law, right? Same thing's happening with moonshining right now, which is interesting to me, seeming that there are federal statutes that if you're caught with even the equipment, the things to build a moonshine steel, then that's federal, that's a federal felony, right? And can lead to jail time or high, you know, high um, penalty economically. So where are we right now is that we have this weird limbo, right? So we have and, and remember, most of the places, it, the whole United States, it's illegal to produce on your liquor, right? But there are so many places in which craft distilling has become the state law, right? So places like California, actually, California was one of the first to create craft distilling, right? What were they making? You guys want to guess what kinds of things they were making? Go ahead. This will give you a chance to talk on your podcast. Wine. Why? No, that's not distilling, though, right? That's anybody Bummer. can make that. That's stump. That's stump stuff. You can put it in a barrel, it ferments, drink it, right? Um, they were, but they were craft distilling um, grappa, right? Taking old wine and creating distilled spirits out of, of wine, which is very popular um, in um, Europe, particularly in Italy, to make grappa, right? Which is a moonshine, by the way, if you don't make it legally, right? So they were actually building the first distillers, right? Distilling. And then, you know, the American South realized about 2008, you guys remember what happened in 2008? Recession. Yeah, big economic recession. States go, how are we going to cover our budgets? Hey, these people have been lobbying us to have craft distillers across the Southern states like Tennessee, North Carolina, Georgia, Virginia, South Carolina. Um, Craft beer is doing really well, getting us revenue. So let's think about craft distilling. And that's where you saw this boom kind of in the 2000 aughts, right? In 2010s of new craft distilling in places like, you know, Gatlinburg, Tennessee, right? Or we see it in Raleigh, North Carolina, or we see it down in um, Dawsonville, Georgia, uh, which by the way, has a lot of connections to NASCAR. So, yeah, so what we have right now is a bunch of people producing liquor, calling it moonshine, right? Labeling it as authentic because it's come from either a family tradition of recipe or at least, you know, Jim Tom or Popcorn Sutton says this is the real thing. 
you know, and that's marketing it, you know, as you've already pointed out, that's, that's really just marketing. Right. And the question is, is it authentic? Well, if you want moonshine, it's not authentic if you pay a tax on it. Simple as that, right? Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough, right? So if you go to a liquor store now and buy something that says moonshine on it, then you're buying a distilled spirit taxed, right, and regulated by the federal government and the state government. It's not, it's no longer moonshine. It is just a bottle of liquor on a shelf, right? Um and remember, too, that moonshine actually as a tradition doesn't have to be just whiskey. It can be rum. It could be gin. It could be anything you could think of that is a distilled spirit. So that confuses people, too, especially when you start seeing these companies start producing gin. Right. Mm-hmm. Was that a distilled? Uh, is that a moonshine spirit? It can be. Right. Um So I think what we see is this limbo, right? We're kind of in a limbo right now with moonshine producing liquor at home and not paying a tax on it illegally versus kind of what you can get now for cheaper too. So think about it this way too. Moonshining went down in the 1960s and 70s and 80s in the South. Why? I feel like I'm teaching. Why? (laughs) Why did that happen? Anybody? (laughs) Bueller, Bueller. Um, I guess just the more prevalence of like ABC stores and it's like easier access. Okay. Okay. So our states start creating access to liquor by creating ABC laws or things like that. Right. You can go to a store that's regulated. True. And it's cheaper. Right. Let's point that out. Right. It's cheaper to buy a fifth of Jack Daniels at the liquor store than buying a fifth of moonshine that is produced illicitly and you have to go do, you know, this crazy like basic drug deal to get it, right? You got to know somebody to know somebody. Um, So it's easier, it's easier to access. So also all the prices of like grain and sugar and the copper went skyrocketed up during, because of the recession era. Um, So it costs too much to produce it, right? So now, and the South also had this infusion of industry Right. So now people are working at plants and manufacturing and meat processing plants instead of and earning a good wage instead of producing liquor on the side to supplement their income. So you had all these economic shifts that really changed whether we need moonshine. Why is it back now? It's because we've made it popular again. Right. We've made craft distilling cool and fun. You can go try all this kind of moonshine stuff. Um, different flavors. You can live in that moment <clears throat> of being a true, I don't know, Appalachian moonshiner, which is kind of a farce and, and total stereotypically inaccurate of who we are now in Appalachia. Um, so, yeah, it's just cool to do, right? And by the way, that coolness is wearing off, right? Just like with craft beer, like we're seeing right now, that coolness, that newness, that craft, that idea of going out and spending several, you know, hundred dollars on drinks is wearing off because we can't afford it. Right. And now people want things that are lighter, like, I don't know, like these seltzer, you know, alcohols that seem lighter. They don't want a harsh moonshine. And, and most people, when they drink, by the way, this, the, the stuff off the shelf that's called moonshine, they're like, that's not moonshine. It's not harsh enough. It's not, it's not going to cause my face to explode. Right. Uh, 
So they're even disappointed in what they're tasting off the shelf because it's not illicit feeling or tasting, right? Yeah, that makes sense. I, I have one more question. I don't want to keep you too long, I, but I, I want to know a little bit about the cultural impacts. Appalachian folks, I do think that moonshining has become part of our culture for better or worse. Right. Um, and so how has moonshining, do you think, culturally left its mark on the mountains to this day? Yeah, I mean, there's positives and negatives, right? Positive is, is that it brings people to the mountains to meet us, right? And to learn that those stereotypes are bullshit, right? Like, uh, just to be quite honest, right? So it's actually provided a doorway or a gateway into our culture again, right? Instead of seeing us as isolated and backwards, now they can come and visit and see, oh, this is complicated and sophisticated. And it has tradition. It has it has something other than kind of the stereotype, right? Um, and then that's the negative side, right? It, it again, solidifies stereotypes when we use them in marketing, such as, you know, I think about the, the moonshiner thing on uh, History Channel. There's a guy on there, I'm not going to mention his name, but he walks around with no shirt on and a pair of overalls. And, and, you know, and it shows that, oh, they're still backwards. They're still country. They're still rednecks. So those things kind of rub against each other, right? So, and I guess another positive would be we're making money off of that, right? You know, and and that can be, um, you know, selling something that is clearly not representative of us. Um, and us is a weird word to use, as I say it to myself, as Appalachian folk. Um, that us is now, it's always been very diverse. And we usually leave out, you know, the black folks that were doing all that moonshine. And I think they just put it in the History Channel show. We left out the women that did a lot of the bootlegging right? Taking these products and getting them out to the community, delivering, even making their own, right? Women producing shine. Um, we forget those nuances, right? We were forgetting those nuances, even in that current discussion about moonshine. And that's me being a sociologist, right? And, and because we forget that that fabric is very uh, diverse, right? And so there's goods and you know negatives. The good news is we're getting economic infusion and maybe some clarification of what it means to be an Appalachian person, right? We do know how to do business. We are intelligent, right? Um, we're here to have just as much fun as you are um, and be responsible, though. But the negative is that is that, oh, well, I guess everybody who does moonshine has a beard, um, smokes out of a corncob pipe always wears, you know, uh, certain kinds of overalls, walks around barefoot. I mean, those things are still there because they're used as marketing. Um, and that's hard to get away from. So, you know, if, if you want to read about it, you could read my book. <laughs> yes, pitch yourself. <laughs> How can we support your work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Called Modern Moonshine by West Virginia University Press, which is a collection of readings, right? about moonshine today right taking you to the past for just a minute but really playing out how moonshine has now become a you know a commodity that we need to understand right and and in our social fabric um there's even chapters in there about you know how do we question things like women doing distilling right um why is that not considered you know historic authentic and those kinds of things so 
there's some great stuff in that book for you guys to check out. I'm sorry to plug it, but we must plug it. No, I love it. Thank you so much. Modern Moonshine by Dr. Lippard. Um, please check it out. And and I just want to thank you so much for your time and for being on the show today. Um, Chuck, do you have any any last thoughts? Uh, no, nothing to add. That was perfect. And definitely happy to plug the book. I'll include a link to it in the show notes. Um, just thank you for your time and really appreciate this conversation. It was great. And I, I learned a ton. Yeah, sorry. I, I tend to have diarrhea of the mouth. So uh, that's that's a professorial problem. Um, but No, I that, this was all so fascinating. I just wanted yeah. to go on for even longer. Um, <laughs> we actually so I, I was texting Chuck I, ne- later this year. We should like huh? let some time lapse between this interview and the next one. But I, I think that having you on to talk about the Confederate flag Sure. would be so interesting. I think people like would be really hungry to learn more about that. Um, so maybe we can book something for later in the year on that too. Yeah. Well, there's significant things going on here in even Appalachia about yeah. um, when, when is your, when is your book coming out? Cause we could oh, potentially I, do it in tandem. Yeah. It'll be about a year from now, but I'm oh, working okay. on it now. Sorry. Uh, no, that's okay. <laughs> but I can talk about kind of community, I mean, community action that's happening right now, like Morganton, North Carolina, if you don't know, has these huge Confederate flags that have been placed on private property right near I-40. Yeah. It's a whole community coalition right now trying to work on and taking those things down um, and those kinds of stuff because of the diversity that's there and the signal yeah. that it does, Right. So it'd be great to have that conversation too and get that out there. I could share what that community's doing. Yeah, that would be amazing. To to create more diversity, even if we're going to leave the statue up, what other statues are we putting up, right? Yeah. Um, and those kinds of things. So yeah, we could talk about that later on. Yeah, that would be really cool. Um, this was amazing. And it's yeah. so good to see you. <laughs> good to see you too. I, I want you to come back. Right. I want you to come back and visit us sometime. Yes. Anytime. I I definitely I mean, I do speaking engagements all the time anyway about advocacy and all of like the stuff that I've been involved in with Appalachia and stuff. Okay. So um, and I don't know if you're, you'll be there, but we will be at the Appalachian Studies Association Conference uh, uh, in March. Yeah, cool. Cool. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right. Well, I'll try to look for you guys then because uh, we're around and I hope awesome. you're talking to black in Appalachia, too. Have you oh, met- yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. They're awesome. Okay, good, 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 good. I was just wanting to make a plug for them. So, yeah. All right. Well, you guys take care. Let me know if you need any more things. I love talking. So Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Lippert. Talk soon. There might be some days that I don't feel. Maybe some days I don't feel I'm probably out here. Well, that was our interview with uh, Dr. Lippard. We loved it. We love moonshine, right? We love it. Yep. Delicious. It feels good going down. It kind of relaxes you in it a does. way. Warms you up. Really does. Really makes does you feel warm all up. good inside. It yep. makes you feel. Similarly, I get that feeling when I pop in a gummy from our friends at Cornbread Hemp. Cornbread Hemp CBD. They have the best CBD on the market. Flower only, full spectrum, Kentucky based, family owned company. They've been a sponsor for us for a very long time. And there's a reason for that. We love them. We love their products. We trust them and their powerful advocates for cannabis reform in the state of Kentucky and throughout the country. 
Callie, you've been slinging gummies for them for a while. Um, tell us about your experience. I love cornbread gummies and I recommend them to pretty much everybody in my life um, because when I was able to take them um, before I was pregnant, uh, they were able to help me with my chronic pain. Um, I, I love weed. I love cannabis. And I, I just, I think that number one, they are breaking down the stigma surrounding weed and cannabis. And that is such a huge, huge asset to people struggling with chronic illnesses or veterans who struggle with post-traumatic stress. All of these things can be helped with things like CBD. Um, and so I love what Cornbread does for advocacy. And uh, I also just love their products. So I've been giving them to everybody that I know, literally, um, to say, like, if you, if you just need a little bit of a break, if you need at the end of the day to calm your brain down, if you need a little notch off of your pain, try these gummies. And they are there for you. I love them. And we thank you for supporting them. We thank Cornbread Hemp for supporting us. Okay, so uh, let's get to our last segment, Under the Radar, Norfolk Southern Disaster. So you brought this up last week. We we briefed the people on this. More has happened since then, and it's like this has only snowballed into something even worse. Yeah. Like when, when you first brought this up, I thought, okay, this is bad. Um, but by this time next week, maybe we won't be talking about it, but that's not the case. Yeah, this, this could very well be one of the worst environmental disasters on the Eastern half of the country in like a hundred years. Um, we don't fully know the extent of the damage, the extent of the poisoning of people, animals, water, air. I, I mean, this this it it really makes me heated because what we're about to tell you guys just like if you're driving just like pull over because you're going to be so pissed so just to recap there was a train derailment a bunch of poly or no it was a, a bunch of vinyl chloride was leaked um there was almost a massive explosion but they decided to do a controlled burn it worked but now that is still burning it's still leaking this noxious toxic gas into the atmosphere into the water supply it is horrific um Norfolk Southern is responsible for this accident, uh, which is the train company, and they have offered so fucking generously uh, to give East Palestine twenty five thousand dollars. Wow! Oh my god! For this damage, twenty five thousand dollars for five thousand people. Five bucks a person, y'all. This makes me so angry oh i'm so grateful i'm so grateful because five american dollars right and this economy can almost get me a carton of eggs two gallons of gas oh no 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 it won't get you a carton of eggs callie you said it almost will oh that's true it's true you're right it'll almost get you i'm sorry i was mansplaining my bad (laughs) it'll almost get you a mansplain i guess Mm. yeah fuck these people i just can't Believe that, I mean, people People are going to be dealing, like, this area is going to be dealing with this disaster for years. Yeah. It and, is not an easy cleanup. No. And, like, what's even worse 
and I found this uh, on, I think I'll, I'll share the link. It's like Lever News, I guess is what it's called. The Lever. I, I've never really heard of it before, but from what I've read, it's like they had sourcing, so it was legit. Yeah. Um, they reported that the rail company, Norfolk Southern, blocked safety rules uh, a couple years ago when they were lobbying against heightened safety regulations. There's And, and I'll link this story. I'm not going to go into full detail. There's a lot of information about like the braking system that yeah. trains use and which which could have been linked to this disaster that was one of the things where but for this it would have been stopped um they lobbied against us because of course you know corporate lobbyists it would cost the company more money so we don't want it right and this is just kind of how it goes a lot of times you see where these companies they'll lobby against safety regulations because they don't want to spend more money on keeping things safe because, you know, God forbid you protect people instead of protecting the shareholders and the almighty dollar that we pray to every night. This is it's so frustrating because and I will say this, there has been good news coverage of this, like the the local reporting of this has been really good from what Phenomenal. I can tell. Yeah. And it's trickling up to the national outlets. I think there should definitely be more. But I. I the fault is not placed at the hands of reporting. People right. should know about this by now. What the problem is, is that like we now need to hold Norfolk Southern responsible. Yes. And that's where the challenge is. Yeah, there needs to be public pressure. I I totally agree with you. This the I, I the the local news has been awesome on this, um, and it's just frustrating because. <sighs> To come out the door publicly with an offer like that is so insulting. It's just, it's yeah, it's ab- it's insulting. That's exactly what it is. And and it's it's horrific. I mean, I was reading stories about there's a there's a person in East Palestine who um, rescues wild animals and rescues foxes God from farms like that would otherwise kill them and does like rehabilitation for animals and they when they were evacuated they came back to their animals all dead and how can you possibly look at someone like that doing incredible work putting their life out there to just helping you know and this is not a lone story i mean people are losing livestock their investments their pets like there and their access to clean water i mean there are places now where kids used to play in creeks where they can't go anymore it's so sad that this town's history is now being rewritten by this disaster and norfolk southern has the fucking gall to offer publicly 25k for the whole disaster it's disgusting it's it really like it is so insulting and just just a slap in the face and also this is a company that i believe let me just double check here last year or their revenue in 2020 was 9.789 billion so basically 10 billion dollars in 2020 they can fucking afford this they can afford to do more than this this is bullshit and they think that they can do this because they think they can get away with this they thought oh this will be a news cycle thing and we can just sweep it under the rug no fuck that and fuck them this is it makes me so angry like so i just i can't even i can't even articulate the words of 25 grand for an entire town yeah 
that's not even enough for one family that's been severely impacted by this. Yeah, Let alone a whole fucking town. And they think these corporations think that because this is a town of 5,000 people, that they're so insignificant that they won't be able to stand yeah. up to them. And that's why we as a region have to demand better. This is not the first time that Appalachia has faced something like this. This is not the first time. <laughs> these DuPont, baby. Right. These corporations (laughs) have been doing this shit for generations and getting away with it. And there is a community now who will not stand for it. And we have to, as that community, really come out hard. Keep this in the news cycle. Keep tweeting about it at Norfolk Southern. Like this, this has their their hashtag or sorry, their handle is N-S-C-O-R-P. That's it. In S Corp. Um, and, and that's all like tweet at them, demand better. We as a region have to stand up for each other and, and be there for a town of 5,000 people because when the next disaster happens in another small town of 5,000 people, we're going to have to, we're going to have to be there for them. And it could be your town. It could be your town of 5,000 people that needs a community that needs a community to stand up for them and stand with them and demand better. And we're going to be that fucking community. Um, this is not something that we are letting slide. Our followers are on Twitter are raising hell about it. And we're going to keep raising hell about it because this is unacceptable. Absolutely unacceptable. No notes. You're on fucking fire tonight. Good job. <laughs> uh, I don't have anything to add to that. That was that was amazing. Um, and uh, yeah, we're going to be covering this honestly, relentlessly, because this is I did not realize and I'll, I'll I will fully own up to that. I did not realize how bad this was initially. And so we're going to be covering this. And if you live in or around East Palestine, give it like, I was going to say, give us a call. Um, uh, shoot us an email info at apodlatcha.com. We'd love to hear from you. We want to hear from people who have been affected by this and understand truly like the real impact of it and what this company is doing, if anything, to remediate these problems. We want to hear from you. And that's, um, I think that's where we'll end it today. That works for you. Yeah. Stand with your community. Y'all stand with your community because at the end of the day, those are the people who's got your backs. Yep. We've got your backs. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back next week with more at Podlatcha.